Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn. Thanks again for joining me. Running a couple of days later this week than normal. Two reasons for that. One, work, my day job, kept me a little bit busy. And two, I had some equipment problems. I don't know about anybody else, but it drives me crazy when there's something that you use all the time, and then you go to use it once, and all of a sudden it's not working. That was the case with my microphone and had to have everything reloaded, etc. But anyways, I'm back. Happy to be talking to you. Over the last couple of weeks, we started going through something that I thought would be really interesting, and I might have been the only one. But what we did is we started going through the trial transcripts from Zuno 1 and Zuno 2, 1990, 1992, going through those trials transcripts, using the transcripts themselves, not summaries, not people's thoughts about it, but exactly what was said to look at different issues in those cases and in the overall scheme of things in the Camarena case. And we looked at Harrison, we looked at Cervantes, we looked at Placentia Aguilar, Berez's testimony. We did a bunch of different things, and I think it's been helpful. I learned a few things. I remembered a few things. I put a couple of connections together. So, uh, you know, I think it was valuable to do. Today, what we're going to do is a little bit of a hodgepodge because there was a lot of testimony that had some bits and pieces of interest, but weren't necessarily big enough or central enough to to carry an entire episode. And so today we're going to take a look at five or six or seven different issues, different testimony that talks about some of the things we've been looking at. Some of the ideas of, you know, are there false narratives out there and how could we dispel those that help us evaluate even more the government's investigation and prosecution and help us to try to answer some of the unanswered questions. So we're going to look again at five or six people's testimony it's going to hip hop around a little bit. Almost everything is connected to something that we've talked about before, and I'll make those points. Now, I also want to note that all this testimony comes from the 1990 trial. Remember, 1990 trial is the one that takes six weeks or more. The one that has a docket that's 60 some odd pages long. The one, the trial transcripts are volumes 1 through 31, okay? Um, It's pretty amazing. And lots of testimony, lots of it that's really not that pertinent to our discussions. Remember, four defendants, four defense counsel, two crimes. You had the the Lanangosta murders, and then you had the Camarena murder and conspiracy. So you've got the prosecution that has to set up this narcotics trafficking enterprise, has to produce evidence regarding those two sets of crimes, 
then has to tie it to the four different defendants. So you have lots of testimony from a lot of people. Frankly, a lot of it isn't all that exciting, not that relevant. So I've tried to avoid that. And I want to go back and pick out the pertinent pieces from kind of that miscellaneous testimony. Now, we're not going to talk about the 1992 trial very much. Why is that? In part because the case was very, very different. Remember, two years later, there's only two defendants at the start of the case. There's Ruben Zuno Arce and there's Dr. Umberto Alvarez Machain. Machain's case, of course, gets thrown out at the conclusion of the prosecution's case, which just leaves a defense put on by Ruben Zuno Arce, which by its very nature was a limited defense. The uh, conspiracy elements were really taken care of in two or three witnesses. So in the 92 case, you have testimony from Frank Radamosa that we've talked about. You have a lot of testimony from Jorge Gatoy and Rene Lopez Romero that we've talked about before. And we've also talked about one of the most kind of provocative things that comes out of the last night, which is this assertion that somehow Jaime Kluckendahl had testified on behalf of Ruben Zunorase. And we've looked at the trial transcripts on that in the past and shown that that's just BS. But he was called as a witness by the prosecution. He was then cross-examined. And in the cross-examined, he answered very specific questions about one very specific point in time and the information available to him at that specific point in time. And Manny Madrano knows that that's the case and that it wasn't some grand testimony in favor of Ruben Zuno Arce because he says that to the court while arguing about a different issue later on. And we've looked at all of that. And because we've already looked at it, we pretty much have covered the 1992 trial. So at least for now, we're going to stick with these remaining little elements of the uh, 1990 case, Zuno 1. Now, the first witness called after opening statements was Jaime Kirkendall, and he lays a lot of the foundation. He lays the foundation of the DEA working in Mexico in the early 1980s. He lays the foundation of working with Captain Zavala, of working with Agent Camarena, particularly with respect to the identification and eventual raids on the marijuana fields in Zacatecas. He lays the foundation and talks about Agent Camarena, the days and weeks leading up to his kidnapping, the days afterwards, etc. One of the things that he testifies to that I wanted to highlight, and I should, let me go back. A lot of the foundational stuff, the foundational testimony is very pertinent. It's intentionally designed to lay the foundation again for the prosecution to try to make its case against its four defendants. But it's not what you would call in-depth in a lot of respects. And so when, for example, 
Agent Camarena is talking about the the day after the the kidnapping. You read the testimony and you go, God, I'd like to know forty seven different things. Every time I'd like to, every time he answers a question, I'd like to ask a different one. And the prosecution doesn't necessarily ask those because it's not relevant to their case. But one of the things that he gets asked, he being Agent Kirkendall, is to describe the traffickers in Guadalajara. And remember in the past, we've said there was no such thing as the Guadalajara Narcotics Cartel. Nobody had talked about that entity prior to the kidnapping. In some respects, it became a creature of the media or creature of convenience to talk about the traffickers after Agent Camarena's abduction. Also remember, you know, you can see, I can see the news report with, um, oh, Frank, uh, uh, Ted Brokaw. And behind him are the three, you know, the, the, the three faces of the Guadalajara cartel, Rafael Caro Quintero, Ernesto Fonseca, and Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo. And somehow those become the three. So I want to have you listen to just a little bit of what Agent Kirkendall is asked and what he responds, how he answers with respect to that. So he says, um, he's asked, John Carlton, the assistant U.S. attorney says, who were the individuals that the DA's Guadalajara office were devoting its resources toward investigating? Answer from Agent Kirkendall. During the three-year period of time, of course, a few names were added. But the principal traffickers that we investigated that were the targets of ours were Miguel Angel Felix Gardo, Manuel Salcido Uzeta. And then he is interrupted with a question from John Carlton. Did he have a nickname, by the way? Yes, he did. He was called Cochiloco. What's that translate to? The crazy pig. Then Agent Kirkendall goes on and says, there was Rafael Caro Quintero, his two maternal uncles, Juan Jose and Emilio Quintero Payan. There was Juan Esparagoza Moreno. Does he have a nickname too? Yes, El Azul, the blue one. And of course, Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo and Juan Ramon Mataballesteros. Now, that to me is interesting, and why is it interesting? Remember, we just said, you know, watch the the news clips from back then, read anything, the Guadalajara cartel, Fonseca, Rafa, Miguel Angel, Felix Gallardo, and yet every single witness, every single witness asked about the traffickers and the major traffickers at that time was answering in a way that put Manuel Salcido Azeda at the top of the list or near the top of the list. Every single one talks about him. And then you have names that Agent Kirkendall talks about. El Azul, uh, Juan Jose and Emilio Quintero Payan, Mata Ballesteros, what was his role? And the fact of the matter is 
that the conventional view of the traffickers after the fact is greatly distorted. And we'll talk about one of the particular reasons for that in just a second. It assigns way more power, influence, credibility to certain traffickers than others. It also totally ignores, as we've talked about in the past, the very, very critical role of Javier Barber Hernandez and his ascent within the ranks of the traffickers. It also ignores El Sami and his particular role. And so from the very beginning of the trial, Agent Kirkendall is saying, in effect, look, this is a broader scope than you know about. And he talks about it in particular when he says, or when he's asked, you know, okay, after you realize Camarena is gone, did you think the traffickers had taken him? And he says, I could think of no other explanation, but that didn't necessarily narrow it down. Again, it wasn't like you had two or three or four or five people that you could immediately go to, that you knew exactly where they were, right? And so the the idea that somehow immediately was, you know, ah, Carol Quintero, you know, certainly that was a name they thought of. And as we'll see in just a minute, remember, at the time of the kidnapping, they didn't even have a picture of Carol Quintero. And yet you, you can go back and remember... Um, what was it? Drug Wars, the, the Michael Mann one on NBC and, you know, Carl Quintero going through the streets, you know, shooting up things and, and, you know, being too bold. It also doesn't account for the fact. And again, it's sometimes you want to be careful relying too much on the testimony of people like Lawrence Victor Harrison. But Harrison says that Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo didn't want to hang around with Carl and Fonseca much in 1983, the latter part of 83 and all of 84, because they were too wild, too dangerous, too um, likely to get caught or be exposed, those sorts of things. So Kirkendall's testimony is important important that way to understand how the investigation unfolded. I want to move now to testimony a few days after Agent Kirkendall. So Agent Kirkendall, he testifies a lot in Zuno 1. And again, I, I've mentioned that there were various reasons that people get called back and back and back. And um, Breas is one, Kirkendall is another that testifies several different times. But Kirkendall testified in the time that we were talking about in his direct examination on Tuesday, May 15th, 1990. Friday, May 18th, Mike V. Hill testifies. Now, Mike V. Hill was a DEA agent who was involved in or responsible for the capture of Matabiasteros. Okay? Now, Details are kind of interesting, and we may go into those in a, in a totally different 
uh, episode because Matabias Staros probably deserves one of his own more than we've done in the past. But here's what's interesting. Matabias Staros says, or he gets interviewed by Vigil in Spanish after he is captured. And he gets, here's what is said. Question is, what did Matabasteros state to you on this day? Answer, he indicated that he had become familiar with Mr. Felix Gallardo, Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo, through an attorney. He didn't recall the first name, but he remembered that the attorney's surname was Pimentel. He indicated that it was a Mexican attorney. He said that he had first met Felix Gallardo approximately three years prior to his arrest, which would have placed it about 1982 or so. Question, did Mata Ballesteros make other statements about Felix Gallardo to you in Spanish? Answer, he indicated that, that after being introduced by the Mexican attorney, that he enjoyed a friendly relationship with Felix Gallardo, however, that he was not aware of Felix Gallardo's role with cocaine. Did he ever indicate whether he had ever met a man by the name of Rafael Caro Quintero? Yes, he indicated that he had met Rafael Caro Quintero on one occasion at a party at the Hotel Las Americas in Mexico, and they had been introduced by Felix Gallardo, who was Quintero's compadre. How long before your interview was this party held? Two years prior. Okay, then he goes on and he says, what other, question, what other statements did he make to you? He indicated during the meeting with Felix Gallardo that Felix Gallardo had told him that Rafael Carol Quintero had killed a DE agent that had been responsible for seizing a large amount of marijuana belonging to Carl Quintero. He then goes on. Um, he says, during the interview, Matabasteros indicated that he did not have any personal knowledge other than what he had learned from the media. Later, he recanted that and indicated that he did, in fact, have personal knowledge. However, that if he divulged that information, he would be killed. Okay. One of the things that is so hard in these cases, we've talked about this a couple of times in the past, is number one, a lot of the guys who clearly were bad, right? Clearly criminals, clearly traffickers, they will take stuff to their grave and not say a damn word about it. I mean, they just won't. And so the idea that he was friends with Felix Gallardo, but had no idea he was involved in the cocaine is of course preposterous. On the other hand, he then says that Gallardo said that Rafa was the one who had done it because of the marijuana. 
And remember, we've talked about that, the simple answers. Maybe that is the one that makes the most sense. So how do you decide from somebody like Mata Ballesteros what you're going to accept as credible and what you're not? And can you make those determinations? And if you can with him, can you do the same with Harrison, with Lopez Romero, and with others? Okay, a couple more that are kind of interesting. So, as you remember, and a lot of you listening know very well, immediately after it was learned and realized that Agent Camarena was missing, DE agents and agents from other agencies from all over descended on Guadalajara. And during the course of the 1990 trial, a number of these uh, temporary agents involved in the investigation and stuff were called. Most of them um, kind of have duplicative testimony. A lot of it, again, is laying foundations, not necessarily all that fascinating. But here's one that was pretty interesting. So... One of the DE agents who went down to Guadalajara was Horacio Ayala. And he ends up being involved in a search of a residence. And he goes there with uh, Armando Pavon Reyes, who is notable for his role in the events at the Guadalajara airport that we'll talk about in a couple of minutes. He also is there with somebody by the name of Espino. He says, Jorge Espino, not sure if that's who it was or if it was Espino Verdin, but nevertheless. So um, he says, um, you know, did you find anybody at the house? Yes, we did. We were able to identify who it was and it was, his answer is the wife of Miguel Angel Felix Garrido, Elvira Felix, Elvira Mario de Felix. Um, and then question. Now, while at the house, did you assist or participate in the search of the residence? Yes, sir, I did. Now, can you tell us what you observed or what occurred as part of your search? Answer. Yes, sir. After the house was secured, we assisted the Mexican Federal Judicial Police in a search of the house. During the search, combinant Jorge Espino, so I guess that answers our question, or my question, reached up into a bookshelf that was behind the desk and that was identified by Elvira as Miguel Felix's office and retrieved a bag, a small bag. And as he retrieved the bag, it opened, or he opened it, and some documents and a photograph fell to the floor. What happens next? Answer. I reached for the photograph, and as I looked at it, I saw that it was a picture of Special Agent Enrique Camarena. And then he identifies the photograph. So, a lot of us have heard in the past about the photograph of... Agent Camarena being found in Felix Garrido's residence. This is the testimony that establishes that and raises the questions again, if 
if there were conspiracy meetings or planning meetings, as was alleged by Godoy, Lopez, and Cervantes principally, then when were they trying to identify an agent and when did they think they knew somebody? Remember, we've talked that that that, that issue kind of goes back and forth and it begs the question of when did Felix Gallardo get the picture that fell down that Agent Ayala was able to pick up? Okay, I also want to talk um, about some testimony from DE agent Sandalio Gonzalez. And he is another DE agent, and he was... Um, a DEA agent assigned to the DEA office in San Jose, Costa Rica. And he testified that there came a point in time when they were notified that Rafael Caro Quintero was believed to be hiding in Costa Rica. Question, and on the basis of this information, did you undertake specific steps? Yes, yes, we did. We initiated an investigation to determine where he was living. Now, as part of the investigation, were you able to ascertain a specific residence in Costa Rica? Yes, we did. The residence was located outside of the city of San Jose near the International Airport. It was approximately, I'd say, a quarter of a mile to a half a mile away from the main landing strip at the International Airport. And then he says... Um, I went with the Costa Rican counterparts, conducted surveillance of the front entrance, and later we went up in an aircraft and looked the area over. Continues a little bit and says, the plans, we actually started them on the afternoon and evening of the 3rd. This is of April 1985. And we went on to the next day. A warrant was obtained for the residents. What kind of warrant? A search warrant. And we received a photograph of Rafael Cantero that was sent to us by the Mexican Federal Judicial Police in the daily Mexicana flight that arrived that evening. <laughs> Keep in mind how different it is 1985 than what would be done today. The pilot brought the photograph to us and we held a briefing with the team that was going to make the entry into the residence. We advised them of the investigation, what we thought we had, who the people were, you know, that sort of thing, and waited until the next morning. And by the morning of April 4, to your knowledge, do you have a Costa Rican search warrant? Yes. Were there any time constraints associated with the execution of the Costa Rican search warrant? It had to be executed after 6 a.m. in the morning, after daylight, basically. On April 4th, yes. So what did you do? We went to the area of the airport and set up a command post, if you will, around 3 or 4 in the morning. And the entry team took their positions around the residence. At about 6 a.m. in the morning, the entry was made in the house. There was some gunfire. No one was hurt. In about 5 to 10 minutes, the house was secured by the entry team, and we followed in to conduct an investigation and try to identify the people who were living there. Did you yourself enter the house after the Costa Rican SWAT team had secured the house? Yes, I did. And after they'd taken custody of anyone that's in the house? Yes, when I entered the house, everyone who was in there, 
who was in the house was in custody in handcuffs except one person, the woman. All right, can you tell us in detail how many people were in custody inside the residence? There were five. Five men in custody in the residence and one female. Now think about this. I just want I, I want to set this up. Carl Quintero flees Mexico, right? He he has the, the confrontation at the Guadalajara airport, which we're going to talk about in a minute. He goes to Caborca, then he flies to Costa Rica. He has men in Costa Rica buying houses, bought a couple of different houses, paying cash, American money, American dollars. And then, and then when he's captured, what does, what does Agent Gonzalez say? There were five, five men in custody and one female. So of the five men in custody, one of them was Rafael Caracantero. So what, he had four, four people there, four bodyguards? That's not a whole lot of security for somebody who's a wanted man, is it? Which begs the question, did he feel safe and secure in Costa Rica? And if so, on what basis? Ponder that for a bit. Question later to Agent Gonzalez. After your entry, did you determine whether or not Rafael Caro Quintero was one of those five men that had been taken into custody? Yes, he was one of the five. Excuse me. To your knowledge, at the time of his arrest, was he using an alias? Yes, he was using the name Marcos Antonio Rios Valenzuela. Um, And then they go on, they talk a little bit more about some of the things that were seized. And I want you to think about this testimony. They're trying to paint a picture, the prosecution is of this big, bad group of traffickers. And and I'm not suggesting that they weren't. But I want you to think of how this testimony impacts a jury. So, question from AUSA Medrano. If I could direct your attention to Government's Exhibit 72, would you identify that force? This is an automatic pistol that was seized at the house. And would you describe the pistol, please? It appears to be a 45 automatic pistol with fancy grips. And I believe they appear to be diamonds. And the letter R and the number one are on the grips. And that's on the handle itself. Yes. So then they show this picture of this pistol with R1 in the handle, in diamonds. Okay? And if you're trying to portray a group of traffickers who are over the top, excessive, more money than they know what to do with, this certainly feeds into that. Uh, and then later on, Agent Gonzalez, can you tell us what Exhibit 62 is? It's a photograph of a bracelet. Appears to be a diamond with the letter R and the number one. This bracelet was seized at the house on 
April 4th, 1985. It's one of the ones. So in addition to the pistol, he had a gold and diamond bracelet with R1. And I bring this up only to, to just to note that, you know, it be, it, the defense gets really hard at that point <laughs> because, you know, in addition to hearing these sorts of things about the cartel, you know, there's all the, the testimony regarding Agent Camarena's interrogation and torture and the interrogation tapes and everything. And it's, it's, it's horrific. You put that all together and boy, you know, whether any of the defendants um, ever could have gotten a better defense than they got, I don't know, but it was going to be a very, very hard case for any of them under any circumstances. Okay. Want to talk for just a couple seconds about the testimony that occurs on Thursday, June 7th from DE agents Bobby Castillo and Dale Stinson. And basically what they both do is they say um, that one of the interrogators on the interrogation tapes is Rafael Caracantero himself. When the transcripts get lined up with the testimony, it gets a little wonky at times. And it appears to me at various times that somebody allegedly, or where they say that's Caro Quintero, he's talking about Caro Quintero, the person on the tapes is talking about Caro Quintero in the third person. So I'm not sure it always lines up exactly right. And that could be as much an issue of which transcript I'm looking at to coordinate with what they say. Okay. But the overarching point here is that Carlo Quintero is identified by both Agents Castillo and Agents Stinson about or as, as being one of the interrogators. One of the things that's interesting is Agent Castillo says that he was able to identify in Carl Quintero a distinct accent, a Norteño accent. And so question, Rafael Carl Quintero, did he have any particular type of accent? I believe he had the same Norteño accent. In your travels through the northern states of Mexico and in your contact with this Norteño accent, did you also encounter specific or unique words native to those from the northern part? Yes, there are a few. In your hearing, the three Caro Quintero interviews, did Caro Quintero use any of the same words that are endemic to the northern part of Mexico? I believe so. And then he goes through and um, gives a, a couple of examples. And, and then the question again comes back. Did you find Carl Quintero's accent consistent with the Norteño type of accent? In my opinion, yes, it was. Particularly, is the accent consistent with the Sinaloa accent? Yes, it is. And so that goes through, you know, kind of the identification of Agent Camarena, or Agent Camarena, I'm sorry, of Carl Quintero interrogating Agent Camarena. 
remember too that we had talked a long time ago that one of the initial interrogators had been identified by somebody else as having a Norteño accent. And we said that very well could have been Thomas Morlett, who we've talked about before. And the one thing that is important when you, you hear this testimony about the Norteño accent and, and Caro Quintero, I guess there's two points. One is Agent Castillo goes on to say that 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 Rafael Caro Quintero wasn't too bright and he didn't have good grammar and that the bad grammar in a couple of uh, interviews that he had listened to was consistent with the bad grammar being used in the interrogation tapes and further led him to make the identification of Caro Quintero as the one who was doing the interrogation or at least part of it. Um, It's also interesting that Carl Quintero's apparent interrogation kind of takes place later in the interrogation process. Remember, initially, there's somebody who's a little bit more deliberate. Um, Agent Camarena, you know, refers to him as, as commandant at one point, is much more deferential even a possibility that he knew who he was. Then somebody else comes in, maybe Har- uh, Javier Barber Hernandez, who gets a little bit more agitated. And then later on, there's at least three people doing an interrogation. And that's kind of when Carl Quintero might have been involved, according to the transcripts and the identification from Agent Castillo. Okay. Something else that I wanted to, to note is the other person who identifies Cara Quintero on the tapes is DE agent Dale Stinson. And we've talked about Dale Stinson in the past, and I won't go into the Harrison Boreas stuff here. But at one point, he goes to the pr- a prison. Um, and in the company of... Um, MFJ P officers um, and a commandant, including a commandant from the MFJP. And he goes with D agents, James Garza and Ernesto Lowe. And they go to a prison facility um, outside of Mexico city called Reclusorio Norte. I'll just read a little bit of this to you. When you arrive at the prison, do you talk to any officials? Yes, we do. We talk. Um, to the commandant, he requested permission of the director to interview the two people we wanted to show a photo to for identification purposes. And were you there simply to observe? Yes, by permission of the MFJP. That's correct. At some point, have you led to a particular area of the prison? Yes, we're taken by the director and commandant to a dormitory. Uh, dormitory 10. What happens when you're taken there? We go inside. We're in a room upstairs. We're taken upstairs, and Ernesto Fonseca comes in. Did you speak to him? I didn't speak to him personally. He speaks to us, speaks to the commandant. How long would you estimate? He talks about 15 minutes, and at some point, you go to another dormitory in that vicinity. Yes, we go to the annex, dormitory 10B, which is the annex, and what happens there? We're taken to a small, what I've characterized as a small rec room, 
and we're waiting for the individual to come in and I meet Rafael Caro Quintero. Does he talk to you? He does. Does he identify you as a DEA agent? Yes, he does. Do you talk to him or does he talk to you or what happens? No, I don't talk to him. Talks to me. As a matter of fact, he was very upset. I don't want you to tell me what he said, but he spoke to you. Yes. How long would you estimate? 10 to 15 minutes. And while you're there, are you able to hear everything? Yes, you are. Um, and then he ends up being escorted out. Now, this is one of those places where, as I said earlier, the the testimony is far less impressive than the real story. And I don't want to give away too much, um, but the the circumstances under which Agent Stinson is confronted by and talked to by Cara Quintero are far more dramatic in real life than that transcript would indicate. And there does come a point in time when Agent Stinson is escorted from the dormitory, kind of out of the prison, by, not by prison officials, but by Caro Quintero's men. And Stinson has said that because of all those circumstances and the nature of Caro Quintero's being upset and things, um, that that's why he particularly remembers his voice and was able to identify it on the uh, interrogation tapes. So those are the two who identify Caro Quintero as being one of the interrogators on the interrogation tapes. Now, the last thing I want to talk about is testimony of Sal Leva, which occurs on Thursday, May 31. And Agent Leva talks a lot about the airport confrontation, as it were. And so he says, he talks about going, he's another one of the ones, he gets down to, to Guadalajara, they go with a bunch of people to the airport. They're going in a couple of rental cars. They're behind Pavon Reyes. They get there, and he says, um, one second here. Let me go back one place. Um, so he says, Pavon Reyes runs towards the jet. Did you follow him? And Yes, did. You and the group are also running. Yes. Now, where are these eight armed men in relation to this jet that you've described? They were right on the side. The jet was pointing south, and they were right next to the door, a little bit to the right, close to the tail end of the jet. Are those eight armed men between Pavone and your group in the jet? Yes. The men stand in the way. Yes. Now, they were armed. Do you recall what types of weapons they had? They... um had AK-47s. They talk for a little bit about the AK-47s. And at some point, Pavon stops. There was a, it was a confrontation. Pavon yells, drop your weapons. And the other group yelled back, no, you drop your weapons. And it was a tense standoff, both sides pointing at each other. Yes. Both sides shouting at each other in Spanish. Yes. Um, then, um, 
he's asked, did you ever see Rafael Carl Quintero at the airport that day? Yes, I did. And then he says, at that point, Carl comes out and says, you know, who's the commandante? Who's the commander in charge? Pavon Reyes says, I am. Then they go and they have the conversation with Reyes, etc. Okay. And and we've talked about this airport standoff a whole bunch. And, and uh, Agent Leva goes through it in, in, in pretty good detail. And he does corroborate the story. He talks about, you know, uh, Carl Quintero getting back on the plane and saying, you know, with a bottle of champagne, uh, next time being, bre- being, sorry, one more time. Next time, bring better weapons, my children, he says. I bring this up <laughs> for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is to show, you know, there's all different, types of testimony we've talked about the testimony relating to this and and he also identifies one Bernabe Ramirez as having been there holding an AK-47 with Carl Quintero you know guarding Carl Quintero so that was important testimony in that regard but you know what one person calls a standoff as somebody else may call you know less hostile the you know nobody describes everything quite the same. One of the other things that's interesting is in cross-examination, it comes up that he had written a DEA-6 report, and in the DEA-6 report, he says, and he had written the DEA-6 report on the 25th, so like four days later, or two weeks later, sorry, um, and he says that they encountered approximately five heavily armed subjects around the the jet. Okay. Five or eight, they were pointing guns. But why do I really bring this up? Because, remember last week I said this isn't the week we're going to criticize Hector Bereas. Well, I got to do it this week. Remember, there's a... a um, Report from Fox News, October 10, 2013. And Agent Boreas is talking about the fact that Camarena was kidnapped and murdered because he came up with the idea that we need to chase the money, not the drugs. Okay, And we've talked about how much, how crazy that is. Then... It says, after the cartel dumped Camarena's body on a nearby ranch, timeline's wonky there, the DEA closed in on Quintero at the Guadalajara airport. Here's what Hector Brea says. Upon arrival, we were confronted by over 50 DFS agents pointing machine guns and shotguns at us, the DEA. Over 50. <clears throat> Over 50 DFS agents pointing machine guns and shotguns at us. You know who doesn't support that? Sal Leva. You know who used to be partners with Agent Boreas or work very closely with him? Sal Leva. Sal Leva says two weeks later there were five. 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 Testimony, he says, eight. 
Either way, it ain't 50. And then to a point we've talked about before. He's question. There came a time, did there not, when you went to the DEA office and looked through the books of pictures in an attempt to identify the person whom you saw on the Learjet? I saw several. I cannot specifically say whether it was a book. Well, could you describe for us what it is that you did look at at the office? Several pictures. Can't recall if it was a page or a book. But whatever it was, at some point he says, yes, that's the man I saw. It was Rafael Caracantel. Hey. But again, when they went to the airport, if you listen to or if you take as true Narcos Mexico, there's, you know, number one. Jaime Kirkendall's there, and Jaime Kirkendall is yelling, you can't let Carl Quintero go, et cetera, et cetera. Kirkendall wasn't there. They didn't know it was Carl Quintero at the time. They might have suspected, but they didn't know because nobody had a picture of him. All right. That, like I say, is probably one of those one of those subtle points that a few people find interesting and more importantly than interesting, find significant um, that maybe others don't. That is our look through the trial transcripts from the 1990 and 1992 trials. The main point that I think comes out of all of these discussions or a couple of points. Number one, the case is more complex with more moving parts, more unanswered questions than many people realize. Number two, the government both from the DEA and the U.S. Attorney's Office, particularly the DEA after Agent Boreas became head of Landa, sold their souls to Garate Bustamante and said, you get us witnesses. And an unknown number of witnesses were provided to the DEA, provided to the U.S. Attorney's Office through Garate Bustamante, including, by the way, don't forget, Garate Bustamante, who took out a ad in a newspaper calling for people. Garate Bustamante, who has connections to every witness who talks about anything specific to alleged conspiracy meetings, direct connections to all of them. The amount of money spent 
by the government in finding these witnesses is heretofore unknown. Several millions of dollars, without a doubt. I've heard five million or in excess of five million. The number of people who came to the United States and have been able to remain in the United States because they gave information or because they said they might have information, they told that to Grate Bustamani, who sent them up, is unknown. Somebody needs to require and mandate an audit of this investigation. The millions of dollars spent and look at who they really convicted and what the results really were. There's a lot of money paid to a lot of very bad people providing dubious information resulting in very little in the way of criminal prosecutions. All right. That's Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena for this week. Next week, we'll do something a little bit different, move in a slightly different direction. Please keep keep up um, or, or keep listening. Again, we're going to start talking about some different things. If you were sick of, of trial testimony, don't, um, don't go far. YouTube channel is coming up. We're working on it as we speak. And don't forget about the newsletter and book two coming up. All right, everybody, have a great week. And we will talk to you next week on Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena.